This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to the New Books Network's Library Science Channel. I'm your host, Talal Yadin, and I am here to talk about The Two Revolutions, A History of the Transgender Internet, with author Avery Dame Griff. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and your work, and also give us some background on the book? Yeah, sure. So said, uh, I'm Avery Dame Griff. I'm currently, in terms of like title, I'm a lecturer in uh, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Gonzaga University. I also founded and curate the Queer Digital History Project, uh, which collects information about and what I call like primary documents from uh, various sort of LGBTQ groups beginning in the 80s up to 2010. Uh, yeah, so that's sort of what I do. And then the book uh, is sort of connected to that work. It The essentially elevator pitch I always give is that we kind of don't get tra- the transgender community as it exists now without the internet. And so the book itself essentially kind of walks you through using uh, sort of temporal case studies from uh, BBSs in the 1980s up to kind of look at the temporary moment to see how these different platforms have essentially shaped that community in different ways. Uh, and then I sort of end with my call and be like, this is why archiving these things are important. <laughs> Can you um, give us also an overview of the the communication technologies that you go through in the book for those of us like myself who are younger than most of them um, and learned throughout the book? Yeah, sure. This is that's the, it's funny you say that because I am also younger than most of them. I talk about the intro how like I I grew up with computers because my dad was a systems administrator. So I, I had internet earlier than a lot of my peers, but I was sort of the chat room area. So what I sort of look at actually in the first chapter is that transition from print newsletters to the beginnings of digital communication with something like a bulletin board system, which practically you can think of as sort of like a, if you've got a modem and a computer, you can use your modem to dial into this external server that you communicate could communicate with other folks. And there were national and international networks of these, the most notable being FidoNet, um, which was not trans-specific, but had a trans-specific, or what they called an echo, essentially a forum. Um, and then the second chapter focuses on one of, I think it was the... Um, more popular commercial competitors to BBSs. Uh, basically, this is the AOL and CompuServe chapter, but especially AOL. Uh, so kind of looking at the impact of that, again, AOL is the thing most folks are probably familiar with. Uh, and then chapter three, I look at Usenet, uh, which still exists, though, again, was most popular in the 80s and 90s, uh, which is a kind of distributed network that was sort of propagated through. It's decentralized, so propagated throughout a bunch of kind of hosting servers, um, at often early on at universities and also at corporation. And then eventually it sort of just has spread through the ether. Um, and so we kept looking at that, especially in the nineties and its role in spreading cisgender. And by chapter four and five, we sort of move into our modern web. At that point, I'm looking at the homepage era and kind of the impact of homepages in terms of self-publishing for trans folks. And chapter five is entirely contemporary sort of, I speed run through like the rise of live journal um, in to talk about the role of like search engines and um, search engines and tagging in particular for shaping trans language. So in terms of like how trans folks can represent themselves and learn about themselves in the contemporary moment. So yeah, that is sort of 
all the different platforms. And by the end, I'm into stuff everybody's now kind of familiar with. I will say for listeners, one of the things that you discuss in the book is these are not necessarily, there's not in the beginning, uh, there's not such a rigid divide between digital and print forms of media. You talk about printing the network or there were all of these existing newsletters, which would just print out (laughs) conversations that were being had on these various forms. Um, So it's not, it's not, uh, these were sort of coexisting with the existing uh, print media. Um, I also, if you, just given that this is the Library Science channel, um, I imagine our listeners are also going to be interested in the Queer Digital History Project. Um, So do you want to talk really quickly about both just what you're collecting and how you're getting it, and if it's applicable, how that relates to the research you did for the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So the Queer Digital History Project actually came out of, I did some of this work for my dissertation, and the story I tell is I realized I had this spreadsheet that cataloged all these information about BBSs. Uh, because bulletin board systems were very, they're very fragile. Um, they're often home run. It's a lot of these where one person had a computer in their basement and it was only on from like nine or 10 PM to four in the morning, maybe because it's their home phone line. So that's when nobody's calling them. So that's when they can have it open. Uh, so these tend to be kind of fragile systems. You had to know about them except for the, like the biggest and most popular ones. Um, so I had this spreadsheet of all this information about these. And I was like, well, this is great, but this isn't very useful. Uh, because how much folks knew about BBS, especially when I thought about things like students, I teach a lot. So think about students, they are not going to know about this. So how do I make this accessible? So the Query Digital History Project started as just a way to kind of make this information available, but also kind of create links to how did I find this? Because uh, a lot of references to BBSs may be in like a digitized OCR newspaper that this BBS ran classified, ran ads in the classifieds. And that's like maybe one of the only major references. So it would be able to kind of include the information I'd collected, but also create those links outward. Um, So that's how I ended up kind of working with Omeka. So I use Omeka in this sort of non-traditional method where it started out with this catalog of communities and then eventually expanded to adding in kind of new information Um, and also starting to collect documents. So like, archives of the gay and lesbian BBS list. A lot of these initially were stuff collected elsewhere, but they weren't really identified as queer. So that was things I yanked out of uh, the Usenet group that was just for BBS lists. So finding all of those, pulling them out, and then turning that into a collection itself. Um, Or like I have a collection of messages from the AIDS info BBS that originally were anonymized and put on the web by the original um, owner when he transitioned it to a website, but they weren't really collected as a thing you could explore. They exist as individual files in the Wayback Machine, and it was practically impossible to like engage with them in any way. Um, so that became kind of collecting those documents and making that stuff more accessible, and then occasionally uh, exploring um, preservation writ large. So like when Yahoo groups went down, I did some work trying to preserve those groups, and that's that's stuff I occasionally dabble in, but I don't do a lot of. A lot of it's just like collecting information, um, and also like went across some, went across some kind of preserving those primary documents. Um, also, sometimes taking donations from folks. Uh, so, like I have a copy that was donated to me by Marianne Horton of CD Forum, which was the very first trans mailing list. Uh, she happened to have a copy, and uh, she actually the Digital Transgender Archive sent her on to me because they were like, "We don't do digital stuff, but here's this project that can take it." This goes into a question that I had. This is a quote from the book. Each successive generation of trans people have often unknowingly come out in an environment defined by those that came before. Um, So there is the sense (laughs) throughout the book that people are sort of rediscovering the wheel over and over. Um, So do you want to talk about that? And also... um, I mean, the role that these kinds of reflections can play in countering that. Mm -hmm. 
that this is I I mean I don't always go back to teaching students, but I I teach a lot and I tend to now I teach uh, a lot of uh, classes that will have like young queer and trans kids who maybe are just coming out and exploring. Uh, that's say I've realized at thirty five I'm a queer elder, which makes me feel extra old. Um, Listen, I think I'm there 26 is six, and I had this with a twenty three year old coworker a couple weeks ago because I know we, I was using. I, in college, used an app that was completely dead by the time she <laughs> was in college. And it was just, like, completely gone for her. So, yeah, it's it's real. <laughs> Sorry. It, it, oh, that's great. It is one of these fascinating things. It's sort of, um, is as I noticed, as I was sort of looking at formats. So if you think about going back to print magazines, the idea of photography and how photography was so important. Print magazines, a part of what they would do is they would run photo spreads of folks because it was a way to disseminate photography. Or you would have your um, the contact directory. So Transgender Tapestry, or at the time when I'm talking about, it would be called TST, TBTS Tapestry. Um, they'd, so they'd run their contact thing. And like once a year, you could get this entire list of like, things with phone numbers or addresses to contact other trans folks, but they also ran photos with those. So the idea of being able to share photos was so important. So we see this in print and that moves over to digital where digital can make those photos so much more accessible. Even if on a phone line, it takes forever to download those photos. The great advantage is that like you can access so many more photos and you can share your photos. You don't have to send them in and wait a month. And so that just sort of snowballs. This idea of needing to be seen is one of these practices that repeats over and over. Um, so as folks get digital cameras, there's stuff like Joanne Roberts, who was a longtime publisher of trans publications. I talk about in the book, I think it's in the early 2000s. She has to write a whole column explaining the difference between GIFs and JPEGs and what is actually printable quality because she's getting so many pictures from folks that they want to see printed because I think at that point, she also like would sometimes just sort of run these as like have a spread. You all print your photo, um, and she's just like these things are unprintable. But I'm getting so many of them, so she has to like explain it to folks because again, as these technologies become more accessible, more and more people are looking for photos. So like one of the things I talk about is um, early on, like we're if we're in like the mid '80s, early '90s BBS era, um, or on a service like AOL, you can have photos, but it's the space is somewhat limited by system constraints. Uh, once you sort of move to the World Wide Web era, those space constraints become less and less of an issue. We've seen this as storage is cheaper and more available. So the idea of having a homepage, you can just have a whole photo gallery that you build yourself and you pick what those photos are. So we also see a change in the kind of photographs from these more kind of mannered and performative, um, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, um, these are sort of sometimes from photo shoots that groups would host. Like they would have a community friendly photographer come in and they do what essentially now I think it was like a glamour shot style photo shoot. Um, glamour shots was real popular with some of these folks. Um, so you have these super mannered posed photographs. And then by the late 90s and the early 2000s, they're increasingly candid because you can have so many photographs and you can take them and they'll turn out decent. And you also notably don't, with digital photographs, you don't have to send them off to a developer. And you have to wonder what they're going to think and how the developer is going to respond down at like the Walgreens or whatever. Um, you don't have those problems. So then this idea, or essentially tracing this idea of like you get your nice photo, you get it printed. But the idea is always we want photos. And the digital increases access until now you're getting more candid photos, more casual photos. So now we see photos all the time. And so when I was initially during my dissertation interviewing um, folks about kind of their trans practices, so I'm talking to trans folks, many of whom were at that time in their 20s, like they're on Tumblr or they're on Instagram, where Instagram is nothing but photos. The whole point is you can take photos of yourself. So we sort of see like, I say this emphasis on photography, it remain it kind of continues throughout the history as a thing that folks are really interested in, but the digital makes it more and more accessible. Uh, and notably like that also has downsides uh, in terms of kind of the ways in which if you're increasingly visually focused, 
what that means for trans folks who can sort of compare themselves to each other, uh, which was a thing that, again, a practice that always existed, but becomes increasingly uh, a, f- a kind of a focus uh, as you kind of move forward into having more photos. So it's not all great, but like essentially these these threads continue, just how you experience them changes based on the technological affordances. Okay, on that, somewhat on that note, um, moving away from photography, but just thinking about self-representation, I'm going to read another quote from the book. Feminist digital utopians in particular considered cyberspace a safe locale for experimenting with and subverting gender, as well as escaping the constraints of binary social norms. In the process, they embraced a Cartesian body-mind dualism, where the mind in cyberspace is freed of the gendered body's limitations. Um, so I don't know. Do you uh, do you feel that that is something that played out successfully? Were we were we freed from our bodies with the advent of the internet? I think what's funny is we never were. But that what I'm referencing is sort of this kind of thread of like it's called like the cyber utopianism you especially see in the 80s and 90s the idea that we can like get jacked in to like the whatever the matrix and like suddenly our bodies don't matter um and for trans folks particularly folks who are just coming out or i should note this is also the period of the 80s and 90s when heterosexual cross-dressers are much more prominent within the community this is the era of the gender community um and so for these are folks for whom to kind of embody if they're th- if they're sort of in the mode where they kind of have two self identities, um, one of which they could only really feel comfortable possibly engaging in in private or at like group meetings or group sponsored outings. Um, so for them to be online was a way to kind of be that self, to embody that self. Folks talk about when they would be like on their computer, kind of like typing away, but they would be like in full dress. And nobody else was going to see him, but it became a part of the thing. Like, I am, like, my on-femme self, and I can do that digitally. Um, or I read about um, Deirdre McCloskey, a sort of well-known trans woman. She was, she's now, I think, an emeritus economics professor. She was at Iowa. Um, talked about starting to explore her transition. And a part of it was, again, getting to embody this different self online. And she, in her um, autobiography, essentially kind of says, like, she justifies it to her wife at the time by saying, well, you know, it's cheaper than therapy to do this. Um, So there was this idea that you could, like, explore this other self and that the digital kind of was a safe space for that. Um, And so somehow it was, quote, unquote, separate from your body. But of course, these things never were. And I think it's a good thing you connect it to photography is that as the body becomes more visible, a part of this, too, is was always an underlying issue. I won't call it issue, but kind of like reality within the community was the dominance of whiteness. It was always sort of there, but largely unremarked upon. Um, and so that was a part of it. It's kind of who are the people who get to escape the bodies? Who are the people who are represented in these spaces? Um, and then increasingly the idea that you move away from the body, for those folks, their experiences of discrimination sort of outside these digital spaces, they still continue to exist. They never escape these realities, even when they're moving digitally. But as I already like, these digital spaces can sometimes paper over them or sort of make it so... These are the not the things we talk about, even though these are the experiences. Let's say you're a trans person of color. When you go out into the world, you will still have them. But then your digital space is not a place where you can talk about how these experiences intersect. And so like this, this is sort of the is as we move into the late 90s, early 2000s, this sort of strain of cyber utopianism, at least with the internet size, well, it goes away because we see from the work of folks like Lisa Nakamura, like, for folks of color using the internet, they don't escape this. They never escape it. And this is absolutely true for trans folks as well. So I, I'm making a note. I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier, um, about the sort of feeling of using the internet. But before we do that, you do write about the reasons whiteness is so overrepresented both in early internet users um, for sort of socioeconomic reasons. And then again, in the archives that are available, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that dynamic? 
Yeah, yeah. And so I'll, I'll start with kind of the community demographic stuff. Because as I say in the book, we don't have great demographics for what the community looked like in the 80s and 90s. Um, there are two major surveys that are done. They're largely folk, like largely their respondents in the end were heterosexual crossdressers. Um, and so from archival evidence, it's apparent like crossdressers of color um, were active within the community. Um, and notably, I should note, this is also the, essentially I'm working with English, English language documents, which are almost entirely American. There's some Canadian stuff that comes in, but it's mostly American. Um, and so, I mean, there are, it's hard to know the exact issues. Again, research that was conducted at the time didn't really also focus on this very much. Um, but I, we know cross-dresses of color were present, but overwhelmingly the records show that they were white. And a part of this too is economics, because at least for digital spaces, um, it was expensive to get a computer set up. Like you're talking um, in, I'm actually, I did some of the math on this for another uh, project. If you're looking at getting a computer in the mid to late 1990s, we'll say this is the era of the gateway all in one package for like $1,500. If we look at that, like adjusted for inflation, that's like $2,800. So that's a sizable, a chunk of change to get this stuff, to get connected. And if we're in the era of like using your phone line, you have to be able to pay those phone bills. Minute if it's minute, you, right? Yeah. Time. Time. Hey, we're not, we're not in our nice $20 a month package era just yet. Um, in some cases. So like, it's expensive to do this in the same way. Like honestly, depending on how involved you were in the community, it was expensive to be involved. Like there was, I, I quote an estimate in a newsletter that for like trans folks coming out, like they just to kind of get access to all the information they needed, they were like set aside, like I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but it's at least a hundred dollars or more like set aside this chunk of money. Cause you will be spending this on books and information and all this other stuff. Um, and if you were someone who wanted to regularly attend meetings and get dressed up, you're paying for a wardrobe, you're paying for transportation. That's possibly time you can't be working. Um, you know, it, it, and if you're going to be active and go to conferences, all of it sort of adds up. So you've got to be financially comfortable. Um, so that, I think that creates a lot of barriers around class or race of who can be really involved, um, in groups and, so then this same stuff sort of carries over, like I said, to digital spaces in terms of like getting access to a computer. Um, you know, we look at statistics at the time, like until like the sort of like rule that computers will always get cheaper. They do eventually sort of get cheaper and access becomes more available. It gets cheaper, especially as you move into mobile devices. But it's still like for many years, it's so pricey. And so it means the folks who can afford it are the folks who are using it. And then, as I say, those folks sort of set the norms for how you are supposed to talk about trans issues, quote unquote, online. And then the archival record, what is saved? What were you actually able to draw from? In terms of the archival record, this means the folks who are involved are the folks who are producing and so, like, if you could be involved, you're the one writing in a newsletter, you know. But notably, because of the privacy norms at the time, we don't always know, like, we assume that these folks are more active, but we don't always know who is writing. So we don't know anything about their background other than, this is Susie. Susie writes a column. And Susie might talk about work or family, but she'll literally just say, at work, She's not going to describe that in any depth. So we don't know a lot about her life. We just have the assumption that we know these folks are more active. So it's more likely they had the time to contribute to a newsletter because that's also the time to write, actually to write and submit a thing. But then we don't get a lot of identifying details about her experience. Uh, there are like a couple of like notable exceptions, like Marissa Richmond from the Tennessee Vows, 
Um, she's a longtime Tennessee-based trans activist. She's a black trans woman. Like there are a couple of folks we know about, but these tend to be like the really famous folks who were really involved. Uh, for the folks where it's just like they're a first name in a column, there you just don't have a ton of background on who they were or what they did to know, like what kind of experience are they writing from and what is their background? So it leads to this sort of underlying assumption that, or sort of like underwrites the archive of like, these are likely very white experiences because like using what we know, sort of I function kind of off this assumption. I look for those alternatives, like look for those other perspectives when I can find out they're there. But I just sort of operate from that assumption based on what I know. Right. We are going to go back to affect, I promise. Um, but I did find the number that you were talking about earlier, this estimated $100 just to acquire all the books and videos you'd need early in transition. Um, and one of the things that you, this is in chapter four for anyone following at home. Um, and one of the things that you're talking about within this is this idea of group membership um, being able to defray some of these costs by borrowing items from a group library. Um, and that really speaks to one of the tensions that you describe as we're moving from physical libraries, if nothing else, um, into these sort of more distributed networks, um, which is this information clearinghouse model. And it's perhaps increasing irrelevance. There's this moment, I'm going to see if I can find it quickly. Um, I think it's the executive director of Aegis, the American mm -hmm. Educational Gender Information Service. Ah, Dallas Denny. Dallas yeah. Denny. So Dallas Denny, um, you have a long quote from her where she, as they're transitioning from these paper photocopying mailing models to online she feels that this would become unsustainable. Um, and it goes into sort of the end, the later chapters where you're talking a lot about these folksonomies that are emerging out of Tumblr, out of Twitter, out of LiveJournal. Um, and there's a bit more of a shared, co-created, iterative way to share this information and even just discuss fundamentally people's own experiences. So to get to an actual question, <laughs> I want to go back to this idea of the information clearinghouse model. Um, does it, it did the, did the sort of digital age really disrupt that? Do we still have these sort of quote unquote libraries um, in some form and what do they look like now? Cause yeah, go ahead. It, it is a fascinating thing. Sort of like that was, yeah, that was very much if it was too expensive, the idea was you could join a group and you'd get access to information. And this is a thing early on that folks realized with something like BBS was the ability to have a digital file was just easier and cheaper. And you could hide it too. Like that's the other thing about physical media. Physical media is evidence. The wrong person encounters that evidence, they raise questions. A digital file can be hidden and renamed. Um, so the, and, and speaking of like the clearinghouse, this was an issue clearinghouses would run up against. People might reach out to them, but then like they get something in the mail, then you're worried about all these physical things. Um, but yeah, for a long time sort of, and notably I just sort of comes to have a long history of these, something like J2CP, uh, which was itself based on materials that were originally developed from the Erickson Education Foundation which is sort of the first of these information clearinghouses. They work working with doctors uh, to develop these materials that could be shared with medical professionals around providing trans care back in the 70s. Um, so they're part of this longer lineage, and I just is sort of where that ends. So Danny inherits all of these materials when J2CP has to close. And so, yeah, she runs this for years. And like you say, in this, in the, as the web is, arising she has this realization of like why do we need these physical things anymore you know what is the point of the physical thing when i can just have a digital thing when i don't have to carry it i don't have to move it i don't have to pay to mail it and so it changes from 
you re- you reach out to the centralized resource and it shares this information. Like you said, to be a more distributed network, we can just web host it and you can see it and you can use it and then you can re and then someone else can reshare it somewhere else. It makes it easier to access this information and spread it further. Uh, and so it's funny sort of, and then as we sort of move away, ironically, from websites into more sort of a focus on like groups and social platforms, that idea of that centralized resource also diminishes. Some of these still exist, kind of hosted by quote, unquote, official groups. Um, but there's less and less of that as a thing the community develops. Um, I think about when I was doing interviews in 2014, and I was talking to folks who uh, were transmasculine or like female assigned at birth. Uh, one of the ways I'd sort of warm it up to be like a shared experience thing, I would, before we recorded, ask them their opinion about Hudson's F2M guide. And it was a thing that if you grew up in a certain era, you ended up at Hudson's. Like, no matter what, whether or not you agreed with what was on it, it was a place you went. Um and I bet if I asked some folks now, like if I were to ask some of my trans masculine, masculine of students now, if they knew what that was, I'm pretty sure I would mostly get blank looks, um, even though it still exists. Who knows the last one was updated, but it still exists. And notably Hudson, the this eponymous Hudson describes how he was inspired to create the site by Lou Sullivan's F2M Guide, a book that circulated throughout the community for years, even long after Hudson, not Hudson, long after Lou Sullivan's death, um, because it was sort of so comprehensive. I think increasingly these distributed networks mean that that information lives in people and like in like the Tumblr posts that gets shared over and over and over, uh, which can have benefits. It could reach even further. It requires less static economic support because some other system pays for it but it also means you lose a bit of the community building and expertise that comes with that this is where i kind of talk about the problem one of the problems of search engines is yes you can put in a natural language query and it can sort of answer your question but that is someone else's authority that is sort of based on all these sort of algorithmic levers you're pulling from but those levers are also getting all the queries from all the transphobic queries, supposedly, all the sort of like general knowledge queries. So it means that its understanding of what you're looking for is at some point not defined by what the community, like what a community member knows. Okay, these are the things someone's looking for, this sort of curated experience of like, whether or not you agree, at least these are the 10 topics that you're likely really interested in to be like, here is what millions of people have wondered. And the vast majority of those folks are not trans. So you're going to get a very different kind of information that may not actually be helpful to you. I also do suspect a lot of the information that is circulating now, it's on Reddit, it's in discords, things like that. And if you go through those groups, you'll see the same question being asked over and over. And it's not because people, if we're going to speak specifically, say, to the trans mask experience, um, you know, people can Google like, where to buy a binder. And the first thing that will pop up will be a place to buy a binder. But, you know, they want to hear it from somebody. They, they want to get that. They want to have that, like, personal interaction from somebody. And that is something that all of these chat-based platforms really, really offer in a way that would have been impossible without... I mean, they're they're very built up at this point. Um but right now, we'll finally go back to affect then. <laughs> you cite, and I will put, I will put um, this person's work in the episode notes for anybody who's interested, but you cite Megan Sapnar Ankerson on a structure of feeling surrounding the early web that sought to make sense of the affective power of using it. Um, so can you speak a little to the affective power of the early web or any of these eras that you describe specifically for these trans users? I think it was very much a sort of a sense of uh, exploration, a sense of sort of like a curiosity 
Uh, so like when Sapper Ankerson and she's pulled from other work, it's sort of, especially talking about, this is from Thomas Streeter, where it was the idea that was with the early web, especially once it becomes highly graphical um, with the rise of mosaic, it was suddenly like, what's possible? What else is out there? So many things could exist. And so we could think of this in connection to how folks are coming into a new understanding of their gender identity may have the same feeling of like, you mean this? I could do this? I could do that? You mean there's not really rules? I mean, there are, but you could start to explore so many more possibilities for yourself. And these things sort of line up in a way. And so this is an experience we see repeat over and over. Those first explorations of talking to other trans folks becomes like, oh, there's more. And I can do this and I can do that. And especially like it's always been true of digital communications, but especially with the web, I think, again, the visuality of it and the fact that it seemed infinite in a way that, say, a highly visual platform like AOL prior to the web is essentially constrained. Technically, they are very, very fancy PBSs. Like they're not all that different. Um, they're just big, fancy nationwide PBSs with with a lot of oomph behind them. And they do have a graphical interface, but you're kind of locked into what's there. The web is infinite. And eventually you can make your own stuff on the web. And so you get this effective experience of exploration, but also particularly for homepages, the idea that I can create a whole space that I can explore my identity through GIFs, through embedded MIDIs, through using as many weird color combinations that I want, but they also become like gendered. If you're trans feminine and you know, you're really wanting to explore some of these colors that you're not comfortable wearing in public, or if you're younger, you can't decorate your room like that. Your webpage can be as frilly and girly as you want it to be. And it may not always stay like that. You can also change it. It's not static too. Um, so it was a way to engage in all this sort of exploration that also too was effective in some of these pages. You can feel looking again, you look at my archival documents, but you can feel the idea like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. I can have like a whole theme and have these images that like you'll see some of these kind of like GIFs repeat themselves over trans home pages sometimes. These animated GIFs be like, this is how I can represent myself. You know, and we can see that even going back to one of the things I briefly comment on with newsletters was the rise of clip art and how many of these newsletters have what's clearly like the secretary file clip art of these nice, well-manicured ladies of the 90s tapping away at their keyboards. And that was supposed to represent the newsletter editor. Because um, it's worth noting that throughout much of this history, until we get near the very end, I'm largely talking about folks who were assigned male at birth, who either identify as heterosexual crossdressers, as transgender in its earlier form, or are transsexual. Um, these are largely trans women. Trans men don't really substantially show up until the web and until, like, again, your late 90s, early 2000s. One of the... so going back to this idea this post AOL explosion of people's ability to um, express themselves you talk a lot about walled gardens in the book Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you just give some background on that term and how it affected how people were able to use the internet yeah so it's funny we for a long time, I kind of, when I would count the world, the term walled gardens, you especially think of, like I said, these sort of commercial platforms in the 90s. So these are kind of the brand names you might be familiar with. Stuff like CompuServe, AOL, Prodigy, Delphi, uh, Genie, which was GE's foray into this. All of these were sort of, again, technically they're like a BBS, but they were essentially self-contained systems. You could go, you paid your your monthly fee for your set amount of hours and then you paid over for how many hours uh and then you would have access to this curated set of forums but each of these notably were services that branded themselves on their access to other things so prodigy was highly graphical and whereas CompuServe early on uh boasted about their access to certain newspapers AOL's whole thing was how social they were so that number of chat rooms the idea of these kind of 
content specific forums. Uh, like the way AOL kept folks on their service was they had a variety of subcontractors who ran these small community groups that the idea that would keep people on. So they or run these small publications um, like Charlton McEwen's book spends a bunch of time. And this is his history. Like I think it's called black software um, of black folks online about net noir, which was a huge um, part of AOL. So like the black community on AOL, like all these things were meant to keep folks there. But the idea is you can't get out. Uh, you know, they want to keep you on their service. This was the big challenge the web posed to these folks. Cause it's like, why would I stay in AOL's kind of like safe manicured space when there's a wild world of cool stuff out there <laughs> that AOL doesn't give me. So this was like an existential threat to AOL. And it's funny, as I talk about this, you might know, this sounds a lot like our contemporary experience around platforms like Facebook. I make this joke all the time. The internet will just repeat its own history like an Ouroboros, but we have come back to the 90s and walled gardens and uh, fears about what children will encounter on the internet. So, yeah, if you're trying to make sense of this, you can think about it the same ways that, like, Facebook has attempted to incentivize never leaving Facebook. Um, because, yeah, it's all about we want to keep you here because then in that case, we can use your eyeballs to sell ads. Because if you go elsewhere, you're not looking at our content. There's also a really interesting shift that you write about when AOL, I believe it's AOL, please correct me if I'm wrong, when they go from this um, – pay by the minute model to this 1995 a month flat fee model. And all of a sudden the incentives have totally flipped and these producers of content, which is what, you know, what, what we're talking about in the most sort of HR way to say it, these content producers um, are incentivized from wanting to keep people on for long amounts of time because they're getting paid by the minute versus getting content up now that they're looking for advertising dollars that will get more eyeballs. So they're actually kind of looking for more turnover. Um, And you go into some depth about how that affects what is actually being written and created. Um, But we are running a little low on time. So I want to ask a few more questions. Um, One is you talk about this briefly and you are citing Aladi Venkatesh, this idea of computers as a domestic technology um, and how as computers become cheaper and they're used differently, they shift into being a domestic technology. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that specifically vis-a-vis the trans experience? Yeah, that is, I think, one of the fascinating things that, like, like technology historians are sort of where, as we move further away from that period, as their field moves further away, it's kind of rethinking. Because there's great works like the history of the microcomputer and how the computer becomes personal. So I think of, like, Lane Nooney's most recent book, uh, The Apple II Age. And certainly computers become more personal, but their widespread use, I would argue we, when you look at kind of um, survey research from the time, is still relatively low compared to, I get to think of like an appliance, refrigerators. So many homes by then, basically every home came with a refrigerator. It was now expected. Um, And so computers were so relatively specialist throughout the 80s and 90s. They're becoming more common throughout this period, but there's there's not an expectation you're going to have one in every home. Um, And so this is like what Venkatesh is as a marketing scholar looking at is the, the sort of killer app of the home computer during this period is the internet. They were becoming increasingly popular. They were becoming increasingly a thing middle-class homes were encouraged to have, but they do not absolutely like kind of take off until the mid nineties when, especially I said the web, when the web is the thing you want. Um, AOL really picks up in the mid nineties. This is because at the same time as the home computer is picking up, you have stuff like the AOL carpet bombing campaign where suddenly everyone's got AOL CDs coming to their mailbox. I talk about, this like Jan Brandt is 
she's the essentially the marketing director at AOL who comes up with this idea is just you get them at Blockbuster, you get them at Kmart, you get them everywhere. The idea is it makes it so accessible. You're like, oh, I got this thing. And then if you can get a computer, increasing at this time, you can get a computer direct from producers. This is when Gateway has existed for a long time, but Gateway as like a home, a name that you're familiar with, that you've heard of, like a Philips or a Whirlpool is becoming a thing. Dell is becoming a home name. Um, you can also start to get computers on credit. So the same way you would go to rent a center and rent an appliance, you can rent a computer from Gateway or Dell at one of, particularly Gateway had a whole series of stores, largely based out of like malls and strip malls, where you could go and pay for it, like by the month. So all of these things are making computers more affordable because now you've got this killer app everybody wants. And increasingly also for middle-class families, the expectation is your kid's going to have a computer because it's being pitched to families as a way to get knowledge. It's like, why go to the library and get the encyclopedia when you can have the Encarta CD, you know, and it's all going to be there because that's what your kid needs for school. And then you've got this new economy logic at the same time from the Clinton administration. The idea is what's gonna like, we, our new economy is digital. And if it's going to be digital, you need a computer. So all of these things are sort of coming together to make the computer a super commonplace appliance for middle-class families and somewhat lower middle-class, especially if they can get access through monthly payments. And how we get to the trans part is all these families have kids. Some of these kids are going on the internet. Some of these kids are trying to figure out how they got all these feelings. And then they're learning about words and they're putting those words into search engines and they're finding other trans youth, like gay or lesbian or trans youth like themselves. And so it really, what it matters is this is why I talk about, you get this generation shift. Uh, the computer is key to it because these youth, if you didn't live in a major city, you might have difficulty getting in contact with other queer and trans youth. But with a computer, suddenly that's so much more possible. You can have a web page and you could be emailing with someone else with like a secondary email your mom and dad don't know about and have all these whole conversations because you can do it by a computer. You're not doing it by a pen pal where there's a risk somebody's going to intercept a letter or on the phone where somebody might pick up the line if you only have one home phone line. None of that stuff exists. And so it like we see this rise and what it means for trans folks is suddenly youth have access to this information that previously they were largely, like I said, cut off from if they didn't live in like a San Francisco or a New York or a Boston or a Seattle that had an existing queer youth space you could go to. Right. There is also a very interesting, not necessarily digital history happening at the same time of the way that trans people are and aren't included in GLB groups. Um, and I, you do write a little bit about how the internet influenced the inclusion of T into these existing spaces. But I have a completely different question. <laughs> One last question before we wrap up. I'm very interested in this idea of internet time. Um, and I will read one sentence from the book, internet time may best may be best understood not as a single homogenous chronology, but as an assemblage of interconnected timings understood in relation to the different elements that comprise them. Um, definitely echoes of a lot of what I've read on queer temporalities. Um, do you want to just give a little bit of background in this idea of internet time? And especially, I think, as a as an archivist, it's so interesting um, to think of how chronology impacts what we are using and how we're thinking about it. Um, if you have anything to say about that. It is this fascinating thing. I, th I think, again, so when doing history and then doing archiving work too, is that with sort of say when I was going, I worked with the collection at the, um, University of Michigan, their National Transgender Library and Archive, which was actually originally sort of put together by Dallas Denny for many years, and then she donated to Michigan. I would be like flipping through these paper documents, 
they're very clearly temporal. Like I had these pages, they had a date, they were locked into time. I could sort of tell sometimes typewriter or word processor, <laughs> what era of word processor, you know, I could recognize all of that. But then when things sort of become digital, there's a way in which this sense of temporality changes. So one of the things earlier on in um, I've read about in Transgender Studies Quarterly was the idea of like you would like Google search for things, but then the age of when this knowledge came from wasn't clear. You know, so you have this whole giant archive of knowledge, but when and where it's from and how it understands these different terms and these different ideas is not clear to the searcher. It just seems present. It all seems very, very present. But that temporality matters for how we think about change, but then it and also because it means when you talk about, you ask the same question over and over, how folks seem to reinvent the wheel. A part of that reinventing is you're encountering earlier discourse, but you have no temporal context for it. You're just sort of like, well, I don't agree with this person. And then me as the archivist goes, that person wrote that 15 years ago. How they think about this is very different than how we think about it now. But short of, say, how the page itself is constructed, that may not be immediately apparent. You know, and so it creates all of these disjunctures in how knowledge is produced. But it also means that when you, it, it's harder to think about archiving. So I think about this, I just finished a piece for the Full Stack Feminism Project about my work preserving Yahoo groups in 2019 and 2020. And this fascinating, I think about some of the um, support groups there had existed for, I want to say by that point, 20 years so I think of like something, again, this is something I was familiar with to give an example, FTM surgery info has information about surgeon. They had this huge archive of photos you could see over the years that folks had shared. So you get this whole sense of a kind of a history and archive that is this digital object that the temporality isn't always apparent, but it's still very important. But this is where we sort of get the problem where like, this is where we're getting very McLuhan, the media is the message why the media matters there's not the same sense like the physical tells us when it is so it wasn't always apparent to like a person using it when something was or like sort of here's a photo but when was this photo taken is this photo a good example of the person's current work like have they gotten better um and the answer might be no (laughs) you know um but like you lose some of that um, but you also, in some ways, I would argue, lose a sense of your own history, too, because it seems so, like, temporary. It's like, oh, the internet will be forever. And this was the thing with Yahoo Groups. In fact, it was not. There was basically, they shut down the whole service within four months, if I remember correctly. And so there were these huge swaths of information that's just, like, ultimately just couldn't be preserved because if it's a private group and you can't get a response to get access to it, no one can access it if a member is not archiving it. And so they just vanished. Thank you so much. This was so interesting. Um, thank you for taking the time this afternoon um, or this morning for you. <laughs> and uh, I hope everyone who listens goes and reads The Two Revolutions. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.